Trigger alert, trigger alert. In this podcast, the hosts make light of serious situations that happen in real life. This may or may not include sexual assault. If you expect these topics will make you feel uncomfortable, we urge you to press stop and listen to some other episode of Caustic Soda. Thanks. Previously on Caustic Soda. Did you ever wonder about your sense of touch and how it works? I'll show you. You feel your sense of touch through the entire surface of your skin. And now, the conclusion. Bam! Joe, Torn? Yes? You may not realize this, but plants and animals have a sense of touch as well. No! Mm-hmm. It's true. It's true. Oh There's, my in God. fact, touch in nature. I have been doing horrible damage to the grass around my house. <laughs> well, maybe maybe that's the thing. Oh, it's their kink? Yeah, or each individual blade has their own particular preference. Oh, that's yeah. That's right. I'm going to have to get everybody's every single blade of grass's consent before I cut it. Uh-huh. You literally have to weed out the outliers. Uh, well, I want to talk about one plant in particular, Mimosa pudica. Mimosa pudica. Pudica? Pudica? Also known as the sensitive plant, the oh, sleepy mm-hmm. plant, or yep. the touch-me-not. Touch-me-not. Okay. It is often grown for its curiosity value. The compound leaves fold inward and droop when touched or shaken. No. I have a video if you want to check out oh, this okay. video. I had a, uh, I had a Venus flytrap when I was a kid. That thing also could sense mm-hmm. touch. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's wild. Touch it. Well, he's he's being pretty. He's not really tickling it. He's like slapping the plant. Well, he wants to get a, a right. reaction, but the reaction is not like as though it had been like just pushed and broken. So it's kind of like close, like drooping and nope. closing up its oh, leaves. Oh, there we go. There's a light touch. Look at that. We'll we'll put this video on the website caustic if you want to go check it out. Mm. Uh, the movement is caused by specific regions of cells losing turgor pressure. Turgor. <laughs> I'm Turgor. This is my pressure. You know, I think that if you said just about any word in that tone, it would also sound like... I am lilac. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. exactly. Fear me! (laughs) Uh, When the plant is disturbed, regions on the stems force water out of the cell vacuoles, producing a loss of cell pressure and cell collapse. The stimulus can also be transmitted to neighboring leaves. It is not known exactly why Mimosa pudica evolved this trait, but many believe this ability to shrink as a defense from herbivores. Right. Animals may be afraid of a fast-moving plant and would rather eat a less active one. I know I would. Another possible explanation is that the sudden movement dislodges harmful insects. I would think insects would be pretty good at hanging on. Hanging on? Well, no, if you just like landed on it and then the whole thing just went... Just you're like, Yeah, you just sort of like... I guess you could fly away or if you're flying insect or whatnot. Yeah. Uh, aqueous extracts of the roots of the plant appear to inhibit the myotoxicity and enzyme activity of cobra venom. Oh, with useful. significant neutralizing effects in the lethality of cobra venom. Okay, so it doesn't like animals nibbling on it, and so it shrinks to right. get away from them. And if you extract uh, the roots, mm-hmm. you can use it as anti venom. Let's put this cool plant everywhere. <laughs> And, then, and then bring in the cobras. I want my because it doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> I, then everyone can have pet cobras. Once everybody has a, a mimosa pudica in their house, cobras galore. Let's do it. Uh, I just want to talk about ciguatera. Ciguatera. Ciguatera is a foodborne illness caused by eating reef fish whose flesh is contaminated with ciguatoxin. Okay. Dinoflagellates, a type of algae, uh, adhere to coral and seaweed where they're eaten by herb herbivorous fish who in turn are eaten by carnivorous fish and the ciguatoxin contained in the algae moves up the food chain and biomagnifies in the predator species right fish such as barracudas Mm -hmm. snapper moray eels that was a moray eel sound yep uh parrot fishes (laughs) groupers hey everybody trigger fishes (laughs) and amber jacks Timber! <laughs> That's a lumberjack, but I'll take it. It was cutting over amber. <laughs> ciguatoxin is odorless, tasteless, and very heat resistant. Mm-hmm. So ciguatoxin-laden fish cannot be detoxified by conventional cooking. Uh-huh. Oh, boy. Uh-oh. Initial signs of poisoning occur within six hours of c- after consumption of toxic fish and include... Yes, I'm listening. Perioral numbness and tingling. What's a perioral? Uh, it's like in your extremities. Okay. Uh, gastrointestinal symptoms like nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is usually followed by headaches, 
muscle aches, acute paresthesia. Oh, paresthesia. Yeah, numbness, ataxia, vertigo, and hallucinations. Right. Severe cases of Ciguatera can also result in cold allodynia. Oh, right. Okay. A burning sensation whenever you come in contact with anything cold. Hmm. If neurological symptoms persist, Ciguatera poisoning can be misdiagnosed as multiple sclerosis. Mm -hmm. That's how... Uh, you know, all-encompassing it is. Right. Ciguatera symptoms have developed in otherwise healthy males and females following sexual intercourse with Whoa. partners suffering from poisoning. <laughs> ah! So it is also an STD. Nice. STI. STI. Diarrhea and facial well, rashes have been reported in breastfed infants of poisoned mothers, suggesting that Ciguatera toxin can also migrate into ah, breast milk. Gets everywhere. This is one funky algae. The symptoms can last for weeks to years, and in some extreme Ooh, cases, as long as 20 years. 20 years, years uh, you've got uh, paresthesia. Although most people do recover slowly over time. Well, I mean, it depends. 20 years probably didn't have all the symptoms. What if the only symptom you still had after 20 years was hallucinations? <laughs> Would that be awesome or awful? <laughs> could be both. Yeah. It could be depends both. on the hallucinations. Patients can recover only. I think if you're a writer, it's good. But if you like work in a steel yard or something, probably bad. <laughs> <laughs> unless, unless you want to write and you keep thinking that your typewriter is attacking you. That's right. Uh, patients turned can... into a bug. <laughs> oh, a very naked lunch of you. Mm -hmm. uh, patients can recover only to have symptoms reappear. Such relapses are often triggered by consumption of nuts, oh. seeds, alcohol, fish, chicken, or eggs, or by exposure to fumes such as those of bleach and other chemicals. Weird. Exercise is also a possible trigger. That's it. I'm so out. basically, once you get it, <laughs> pretty much anything might bring it back at any point right. in time. In Northern Australia, where Ciguatera is a common problem. Oh, a common problem. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, because they have tons of reef fish, and it's right. probably part of a regular diet, right? Okay. Two different folk science methods are widely believed to detect whether fish contained ciguatoxin. Folk science. Yeah, it seems I've like never a bit heard of those oxymoron. two words put together yeah. quite that way before. <laughs> uh -huh. I've heard folk medicine, but never folk science. Locals claim flies will not land on contaminated fish. Okay. So cut it open, lay it out, and if the flies don't jump on it, Toxin. Can't be good for you Can't if the flies don't like it. Yeah, yeah you got to let the flies land on it and lay some eggs in there and then yeah. eat it. Yeah. yeah. And then poop out maggots. Uh, locals will sometimes feed the fish meat to a cat and observe to see if the cat displays symptoms. Oh, God. How long does that take? Six hours. Okay. Probably less than a cat. It's six hours in a human. Right. Okay. So, uh, you know, you just uh, feed it to a cat. And you're like, Are you hallucinating right now? <laughs> Cat, do you have paresthesia? Yeah, I guess. Uh, I guess once a cat has uh, perioral numbness and tingling, uh, you don't quite know it. Oh no, maybe it just walks like it's got socks on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> shake That's the right. paw every like yeah. two steps. That's yeah. how you know. There is no effective treatment or antidote for ciguatera poisoning. Wow. Avoiding consumption of all reef fish is the only sure way to avoid exposure. Done. Done. <laughs> Well, Torn, you don't like fish. No. So uh, but the next time somebody offers me moray eel sushi, I'm going to bow out. I'm think twice. Yeah, no kidding. Public service announcement. announcement. Hugs are good for your health. Are they? This has been a public service announcement. <laughs> uh, what, what if, what if <laughs> hug a caustic, <laughs> hug Hugosaurus today? What if you're hugged by one of those WWE wrestlers with the giant biceps and pecs, and he is literally trying to squeeze the life out of you? Probably. St oh, oh, the Oh, well, then you would get good and bad. <laughs> You probably get the good uh, benefit of being hugged and touched, which I'll talk about shortly, uh, and then you would die. All right. Okay. Just saying. Regular embrace. There's a dark side to this article. Yes. <laughs> the dark side of hugging. Today on Caustic Soda. <laughs> this is our hug episode. Regular embraces can lower the risk of heart disease, combat stress and fatigue, boost the immune system, fight infections, and ease depression. Just 10 seconds of hugging can lower blood pressure, decrease the amounts of stress chemicals, and increase levels of feel-good hormones like oxytocin. Oxytocin is secreted by mother's bodies during childbirth and stimulates release of breast milk. Wait, say, uh, isn't oxytocin that uh, that super the, addictive the, drug? It's, it's the love hormone. Yeah, it's not that. Oh, super... you're thinking of oxycontin. Oh no! If only House was addicted to oxytocin, he would love everybody and be far less of a curmudgeon. <laughs> you know, it's when I walk into the uh, you know medicine cabinet and I got my bottle of oxytocin and I got my bottle of oh. oxycontin, mm. and it, those are two things you do not want to mix up. That is so true. Uh -huh. The skin contains a network of pressure centers called. Pacinian corpuscles that can sense touch and which are in contact with the brain through the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is connected to a number of organs, including the heart, and also connected to oxytocin receptors. Uh -huh. Babies who are not held enough will literally stop growing, 
And if the situation lasts long enough, even if they're receiving proper nutrition, they will die. You will die if you're a baby and you're not getting hugged enough. So if you mm. if you're one of those mothers who like, oh, I love, I I don't like them when they grow up. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Just oh. don't never touch them. So just hug them just, just enough, enough so they don't die. Yes. But not so much no, that, that they, they grow. grow. Oh, this is Gary Coleman. This is what happened oh to him. Oh, my God. He only got hugged a couple times. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Researchers discovered this when trying to figure out why some orphanages had infant mortality rates of up to 30 to 40 percent and lack of human touch was deemed the cause. Wow. Yeah. Infants aged zero to five simply do not receive enough stimulation in group residential care to develop. Okay. In fact, babies raised in orphanages often begin to fear touch and avoid it. They right. don't get enough repetition with particular people to build bonding. This is why orphans, I mean, orphanages need to hire, like, I don't know, like really big or, or fat people. Oh, They really? just come in and, like, hug everyone at once. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, here's your $6 I don't know if for the laying, daily hug. Uh, just like lying a fat person down and then laying babies on top of them counts as hugging. But <laughs> no. it's probably better than no hugging at all. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know? I guess, you know, if a baby can kind of clamp onto a roll, it would probably feel like hugging to them. So the sensation is the same. Baby huggers. Uh-huh. When children raised in orphanages are placed in loving homes, it appears that much of this damage can be reversed. Cross-cultural research suggests that cultures which lavish more affection on infants and children are less violent and less prone to crime. Mm-hmm. Hug a baby today. So listen, hug kids, like, y- you know... <laughs> In an appropriate way. Appropriately. Supervised manner. Yeah. Make sure you've got their parents' permission. Uh, Don't hug random children on the street. No. No. I don't think you're loved enough. (laughs) I'm going to prevent you from being a criminal. You're short. I'm going to hug you so you can grow. Trust me, this is going to keep you alive. Why can't you just get the orphans to hug each other? Uh, yeah, I guess. That well, you if know, you're an infant, though, you, what are you going to do? You're going to just put just a... Just like good, stack five or six of <laughs> them in a crib. Just and You're fine. St- yeah, then yeah. one of them, you'll find one of them smothered. No, no, we're not overcrowded. <laughs> well, this orphanage is not overcrowded. We are doing our due diligence for and, hugging. And right. And my hugging guess therapy. is that, you know, up until fairly recently, this knowledge wasn't known. And probably orphanages were run by people who are quite uh, conservative uh-huh. and probably told the kids to not do Nuts, that. Usually. Right. Yeah, right. that's that's what I'm thinking. And now that I think about it, I don't even know how many how many orphanages there are in B.C. I know, mostly know people who have been in foster care. Right. Basically, who have been moved from temporary house to temporary right, house right. rather than living in a, a huge communal orphanages. Mm hmm. In the history. Tickle torture. Oh, oh. I, honestly, truly. Tickle torture. Can you be tortured by tickling? Yes. What? Joe says yes. Like, everybody's, well, not my older brother, but everybody else's older brother. This like, sounds like another segment him. for our live, or not our live, our um, web series pilot video. Oh. <laughs> tickle Joe torture? being tickled. Yeah. Uh, here's the problem. I'm only ticklish in a few spots, but when you get me, I will flail. I have almost broken the nose of a girlfriend uh-huh. who came up behind me, and it's it's down at my waist. Oh, and if I you, thought I was going to say it's your taint. <laughs> <laughs> that's my tickle zone. Uh, that's also ticklish, but in a very different way. Uh-huh. Uh, she came up behind me and just kind of went, eee! and you know, just touched the, the lower sides of my torso, and yeah. I went, ah! And my arms flew back, and I caught her in the nose with one elbow. Like, Oof, duh. And it, I can't stop it. I'm very tick- in that one spot, not right, in other right. spots. Tickle torture is the use of tickling to abuse, dominate, humiliate, or even prank someone. The victim laughs even if he or she finds the experience unpleasant because yes. the laughter is an innate reflex rather than social conditioning. Okay. Chinese tickle torture was practiced in the courts of the Han Dynasty. Chinese tickle torture was a punishment for nobility since it left no marks, and the victim could recover easily and quickly. All right, so if you needed to torture your noble people, I mean, but really, truly, honestly, I guess this is kind of like, listen, we got to do something to you. We don't really want to, we don't want to cut off a hand or like, you know, yeah. put you in jail or anything. So, tee Ticky, ticky. <laughs> I think after some practice, you could get pretty good at tickling and realizing when it's bothering them and right. making it worse. Right, right. Have you got any examples of that? Just like uh, people with super strong hands? Yeah. Okay. All right. The tickler. All right. Bring in the tickler. (laughs) You got a court-appointed tickler? Yeah. That would be a sweet job. Really, truly, that's a sweet job. In ancient Rome, a person's feet were dipped in a salt solution, and a goat was brought in to lick the solution off the soles of the feet. (laughs) Genius. There's your tickler right there. Yeah. It would start out as a tickling sensation, but become extremely yeah. painful. Yeah. I But I bet you goats have rough tongues, right? Because goats eat anything. Like, goat will yeah. eat a tin can, That's literally. What that, for, if the cartoons from the 40s have taught me anything. Yeah. If all of them taught me anything, a goat will eat just about anything. 
so I bet you they have super rough tongues. So I could see that. Like, if you give a goat enough time, it could probably do some, you know. They wanted to bring in a bunch damage. of cats, but they couldn't herd them, <laughs> as we all know. I, I love the way Kevin is pretending like he's guessing what a goat's tongue is like. <laughs> I bet a goat's tongue is rough. And warm and soft. In ancient Japan, those in positions of authority could administer punishments to those convicted of crimes that were beyond the criminal code. Okay. Yeah, because they probably, back in you know feudal eras, the criminal code was probably like two pages long. What does right? beyond the criminal code mean? It's not illegal, but I don't want you to do it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, because the criminal code in feudal Japan probably was like two pages instead of like, you know, the like entire room full of books that we have in the modern world. Right? Okay. This was shike, which translates as private punishment. One such torture was kusuguri zeme, merciless tickling. Shike is going to be the name of my new ninja. Okay. Private punishment. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. I like that. Now, Heinz Heger, okay. a prisoner in the Flossenburg concentration camp. Oh, those guys are not nice guys. Witnessed Nazi prison guards perform tickle torture. What? Heger describes this incident in his book, The Men with the Pink Triangle. The Men with the Pink Triangle. Those were the, those were the, gay, uh, the gay guys. Mm-hmm. So they had a concentration camp called Flossenburg. The first games that the SS sergeant and, and his men played was to tickle their victim with goose feathers. Oh, to go along with the goose stepping. On the soles of his feet, between his legs, in the armpits, and on the other parts of his naked body. <laughs> At first, the prisoner forced himself to keep silent while his eyes twitched in fear and torment from one SS man to the other. Then he could not restrain himself, and finally he broke out in a high-pitched laughter that very soon turned into a cry of pain. While the tears ran down his face and his body twisted against his chains. After this tickling torture, they let the lad hang there for a little, uh, while a flood of tears ran down his cheeks, and he cried and sobbed uncontrollably. I think I've seen that video online. So, this is actually a real thing. Tickle torture. Tickle torture is yeah. actually a real thing. You didn't believe it. It's, I did not believe it. It's also odd, though, that they're like, let's round up all the homosexuals and put pink triangles on them, and then let's tickle them while they're <laughs> naked. Like, Well, maybe in the kind of twisted Nazi logic, maybe you're like, oh, this is the only torture that uh, you know is proper for them. All I'm thinking is that every single guy doing this is in the closet. Oh, maybe they'll volunteer. Totally. Oh, they'll yeah. volunteer for the concentration oh, camp yeah. where they sent all the homosexuals. Oh, those dirty homosexuals. Let me torture them. I know exactly how to do it. I will torture you know. them with tickling Can- and my penis. Yeah, exactly. I will torture them. I will force them to perform sexual that acts will on me. That teach them to be homosexual. If touching them with a feather bothers them, imagine what my penis would do. <laughs> and uh, the lieutenant over here must cut my balls. <laughs> Don't look me in the eye. That would be gay. <laughs> <laughs> and I, then I would have to wear a pink triangle, and you would have to <gasps> look me in the eye. In his book, Sibling Abuse, Vernon Wayhey <laughs> Vernon Wayhey published his research regarding 150 adults who were abused by their siblings during childhood. Several reported tickling as abuse they experienced, and it was found that abusive tickling is capable of pr- provoking extreme physiological reactions on the victim, such as vomiting and losing consciousness. Oh, I have totally seen a YouTube video of a guy losing consciousness after being tickled. We got to put this video up on the website, CosmicSodaPodcast.com. Holy crap. <laughs> wow. Now he's gone sleepy. <laughs> and the that thing is, is an extreme reaction to tickling. And the only way he could fake that is if he's not ticklish at all, because they keep tickling him, yeah, yeah. and he's just out. His eyes have rolled back in his head and everything. And he never returned to consciousness. <laughs> <laughs> he's still on life support today. I want to talk about Harlow's Monkeys. Harlow's Monkeys. An American psychologist, Harry Harlow, established a breeding colony of rhesus macaques in 1932. He needed regular access to infant primates for his studies and thus chose to rear them in a nursery setting rather than with their protective mothers. Okay. Although Harlow, his students, contemporaries, and associates soon learned how to care for the basic physical needs of their infant monkeys, the nursery-reared infants remained very different from their mother-reared peers. Uh Uh-huh. They found these nursery-reared infants were slightly strange, reclusive, Mm -hmm. social deficits, Mm -hmm. and they clung unreasonably to their cloth diapers. Uh, Conventional wisdom at the time, and this is back in the late 30s, early 40s, was that uh, human infants should be separated from their mothers as much as possible, and physical contact was considered harmful to healthy development, Right, and sterile nursery environments were favored. Why? That's why there was that crime spree like 17 years later. Yeah. (laughs) 
Precisely. Psychologist John Bowlby argued that the mother provides more than just food for an infant, including a unique bond that positively influences the child's development and mental health. Mm -hmm. So this is when Harlow got involved in this debate. He created inanimate surrogate mothers for the rhesus infants from wire and wood. Oh, I've seen these pictures. Each infant became attached to its particular mother, recognizing its unique face and preferring it above all others. There is a video for this. Okay. We'll put the link to the video on the website so you can check this out. Where Harlow himself, he does this six-minute expl- explanation of his, uh, of his setup, right? So... Harlow next chose to investigate if the infant monkeys had a preference for barbed wire mothers or cloth-covered mothers. For this experiment, he presented the infants with a cloth mother and a wire mother. Overwhelmingly, the Reese's infants preferred clinging to the cloth mother. Sure. Even when only the wire mother could provide food, the monkeys would only visit her to feed and then return immediately to the cloth mother. Mm -hmm. Harlow concluded that there was much more to the mother-infant relationship than milk and that this contact comfort was essential to the psychological development and health of infant monkeys and children. This research gave strong empirical support to Bowlby's assertion on the importance of love and mother-child interaction. Now, this all sounds not particularly caustic soda. No. But you know what? It sounds like uh, something I can use to flip the bird to people who constantly say, science can't prove love. Uh-huh. But then, yeah. They, yeah, we can. then they replaced Kevin's mother with a wire mother. Oh, oh no. Oh, this is where it goes dark. Yes. <laughs> All of a sudden it becomes the Stepford Wives, right? All of our mothers are, you know, wire-covered robots. No, it's sort of the second wave of Harlow's experiments that got a little dark. Okay. Okay. From around 1960 onwards, Harlow and his students began publishing their observations on the effects of partial and total social isolation. Right. Partial isolation involved raising monkeys in bare wire cages that allowed them to see, smell, and hear other monkeys, but provided no opportunity for direct physical contact. Okay. Total social isolation involved rearing monkeys in isolation chambers that precluded any and all contact with any other monkeys. Harlow reported that partial isolation resulted in various abnormalities, such as blank staring, repetitive circling in their cages, and self-mutilation. <laughs> for the study, some of these monkeys were kept in partial solitary isolation for up to 15 years. Wow. In the total isolation experiments, baby monkeys would be left alone for 3, 6, 12, or 24 months of total social deprivation. The experiments produced monkeys that were severely psychologically disturbed. The sad uh, part is monkeys only live to be 11. <laughs> Yeah, they slept a dead, dead body for like four years. Uh, here's my uh, here's my Harry Harlow. I'm going to do like 40s guy. Sure. Okay. No monkey has died during isolation. When initially removed from total social isolation, however, they usually go into a state of emotional shock characterized by autistic self-clutching and rocking. One of six monkeys isolated for three months refused to eat after release and died five days later. Ooh. The autopsy report attributed death to emotional anorexia. The effects of six months of total isolation were so devastating and debilitating that we had assumed initially that 12 months of isolation would not produce any additional decrement. This assumption proved to be false. 12 months of isolation almost obliterated the animals socially. Wow. So uh, they just wanted to see if it could get any worse. And they said, you know what? We're going to predict. Like, you know, scientists like to do that. Mm-hmm. They like to predict. They make predictions. They have a Test- hypothesis. Testable theories. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they said, it can't get any worse than these six months of isolation. Yeah, that's it. And then they did 12 months. They went, oh, it got worse. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Obviously, under these conditions, Harlow had his fair share of criticisms. Yes. But he also didn't help himself at all. <laughs> uh, because Harlow was well known for not using conventional psychiatric terminology. Instead, choosing deliberately inflammatory terms for experimental apparatus that he des- designed. Oh, this arose from an early conflict with the psychological establishment, and Harley used the term love in place of the considered correct term, attachment. So he would okay. say, these monkeys love the cloth-covered mother. Okay. When the psychologist goes, you can't say love because that's an emotion. You right. can say they're attached to that. And he's like, screw everyone, that. It's every, love. Everyone knows that monkeys don't love. Well, be, whether they love or not, yeah. just because they cling to a cloth-covered mother doesn't mean that they love that thing. Mm-hmm. But he refused to not use that word. Sure. And so it became this kind of long-standing feud that he had. Okay. <laughs> so uh, he had a forced mating device that he referred to as the rape rack. Okay. That, yeah, uh, yeah. Surrogate mother devices designed to torment young infants, a rhesus monkey infants, he called Iron Maidens. And the total isolation chamber he called the, the pit, pit of, of despair. despair. This guy's a real piece of work. He really hated monkeys. Actually, when Harlow himself was asked about his work, he replied, The only thing I care about is whether a monkey will turn out a property I can publish. I don't have any love for them. I never have. 
I don't really like animals. I despise cats and I hate dogs. Fuck that guy. Oh, wow. There's many levels of dislike. <laughs> In fact, William Mason, one of his students who continued deprivation experiments after leaving the school that Harlow worked at, has since said about Harlow, he kept this going to the point where it was clear to many people the work was really violating ordinary sensibilities, that anybody with respect for life or people would find this offensive. Right. It's as if he sat down and said, I'm only going to be around another 10 years. What I'd like to do then is leave a great big mess behind. <laughs> If that was his aim, he did a perfect job. Wow. Apparently, he needed to be hugged more when he was younger. Oh, perhaps. Perhaps. This was all born out of his, like, he felt like a little Reese's monkey with a wire mother back in his own childhood. I'll show them all. I'll show them what they did to me <laughs> with monkeys. So on the opposite side of the Harlow uh, coin is somebody called Temple Grandin. Has everybody any heard of this woman? Temple anybody? Grand. Oh, it's not a place? No, it's a person. Oh. It sounds like a place, though, doesn't it? I, w- I thought right. I might have to go to Temple Grandin. Oh, well, you could go to her. She does reside in places. Okay. She was born in Boston, Massachusetts in 1947. She displayed many of what are now recognized as the classic early symptoms of autism. She hated to be touched, had temper tantrums, and was mostly speechless. Okay. Diagnosed and labeled with brain damage. At the assistance of her mother, she was placed in a structured nursery school rather than a mental institution. And the individual schoolroom attention drew Temple out of her shell. Hmm. All right. As a teenager, she was sent to live on her aunt's ranch in Arizona, where she first began to feel a special bond with the cattle, Move. in whose company she felt more peaceful than she did with people. Sure. I can relate. She discovered that the cattle were, like her, unsettled by unexpected sounds and motions. But in the squeeze chute... Say what? It's this device that cows would like walk through right. in order to be vaccinated. So okay. what, they walk into this like uh, this chute, and then the chute clamps down on them. Right. And it holds them still, and then they give them an injection. It's just like a metal fence on each, chi- each side, and it just kind of squeezes Exactly. Shut. And there's, there's a kind of a collar that clamps around their neck, so right. they don't move. And they give them a quick shot and then let them go. And Temple noticed that in the squeeze chute, they would be incredibly calm. Mm-hmm. Fascinated by this device, Temple tried it out on herself which resulted in a dramatic soothing of her nerves without the uncomfortable human contact necessary in a hug. She was vaccinated so many times. (laughs) The scientifically-minded Temple set about constructing her own makeshift squeeze machine. And we'll have a picture of this on the website. Here it is right here. Check it out. Wow, okay. All right, so... (laughs) That's awesome. This machine consists of two hinged four-by-three-foot padded sideboards... Which form a V shape. <laughs> Can we rename this the Hugatron 2000, please? Yeah, yeah. Some people do call it a hug machine. Okay. It's the squeeze machine and the hug machine. The two padded sideboards form a V shape, and there's a control box that controls an air compressor. Temple would lay on her front in the chamber, which would apply deep pressure stimulation evenly across the lateral parts of her body and calm her overactive nervous system. Several therapy programs in the U.S. now use her hug machines to achieve calming effects among both children and adults with autism. Temple soon began to design what she could already see in her mind, better ways of channeling cattle through to disinfectant vats and vaccinations without them becoming alarmed. Next, she turned her attention to slaughterhouses, designing humane systems of slaughtering cattle. And today, more than half the cattle in the U.S. and Canada are handled in facilities designed by Temple Grandin. She is currently considered to be America's foremost expert on humane livestock handling processes. Can I get the Hugatron 2000 model that also brands people? <laughs> uh, yeah, there, I watched a BBC documentary. We'll talk about it more in pop culture, but it was a, uh, an hour-long episode of a TV series, like totally focused on her and her work. It was really interesting. She's an interesting lady. Hmm. Temple Grandin is interesting enough that a 2010 HBO biopic directed by Mick Jackson and starring Claire Danes won five Emmys and a oh. Golden Globe. Claire Danes. Mm-hmm. Wow. You got anything to live up to the high standard that Temple Grandin has set in uh, helping along humankind? Uh-huh. I can tell you that any martial arts technique re- reputed to kill using less than lethal force is known as the death touch. Oh, yeah. Oh, the dim Mac. <laughs> Yeah, this is in like Bloodsport or something. Did they talk about the Dim Mac and Bloodsport? I know that Bart tried to perform the touch of death on Lisa in at least one episode of The Simpsons. Okay, there you go. That's right. And wasn't there was the one in uh, uh, Kill Bill where you only get to do a few steps afterwards? Oh, yeah, what yeah. was that called again? Touch. They, they called it the Dim Mac. Tales of its use are often found in the wuxia genre of Chinese martial arts fiction. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Dimac is depicted as a secret body of knowledge with techniques that attack pressure points and meridians Mm -hmm. said to incapacitate or cause immediate, sometimes even delayed death to an opponent. Mm -hmm. Right. 
There's no scientific or historical evidence for the existence of a touch of death. I, I remember. <laughs> I can't imagine. I remember a very early Dungeons and Dragons ninja. I think build character that you could play had the delayed death touch ability i know they had it in ninjas and super spies as well mm. uh it there definitely was a dim mac there mm-hmm. there have been a number of martial artists claiming to practice the technique in reality beginning in the 1960s when the term was advertised alongside the english translation the death touch by american eccentric he's known as an eccentric count dante oh <laughs> is, can we start calling you that <laughs> Hold on. Canadian eccentric, Torin. In 1985, an article in Black Belt magazine <laughs> speculated that the death of Bruce Lee in 1973 might have been caused by a delayed reaction to a Dim Mac strike he received several weeks prior to his collapse. <laughs> they actually, I love how, who, when, when somebody is writing that, do they actually believe it? Do nope. you think the person writing oh. it? Maybe. 50-50. Charlatan or person who doesn't understand the universe and is fooling themselves. Yeah. (laughs) In the 1990s, karate instructor George Dillman Mm -hmm. developed a style that involves Kyoshu Jutsu. Mm, But he knows how to make a mean... um, grilled salmon. Oh. Right. A mm-hmm. term that he identifies with Dimac. Dillman eventually went as far as claiming to have developed chi-based attacks that work without physical contact or no-touch knockout techniques. Uh-huh. A claim that did not stand up to third-party investigation and was consequently denounced as fraudulent. Yeah. yeah. I think I've seen video of that guy where he's there with his students and he goes like, Hoo-ah! and then the student like flies through the air or yep. whatever. And then you see a video of like some somebody else come up and just like run towards him and knock him. Yeah, a mixed martial arts guy yeah. gets to see that, and the guy is like, th- without touching, throwing his students around, yeah. and he's like, "I am invincible in combat, and the and I'll fight anybody." And the mixed martial arts guy just destroys him, <laughs> yeah, because he doesn't believe a, a thing about it. So yeah. n- none of it does anything to him. I saw you last night and got that old. When you came in sight, I got that old feeling. The moment that you danced by, I felt a thrill. And when you caught my eye, my heart stood still. Once again, I seemed to feel that old yearning. And I knew the spark of love was still burning. There'll be no new romance for me. It's foolish to start for that old feeling is still in my heart. In the news, I want to thank our intern, Corey, for a lot of the research for this episode. She was like instrumental in helping us find stuff like this from Japan, June 2014. Japanese researchers have developed a haptic device that attaches to a person's hand and can simulate realistic tactile sensations on individual fingertips. The device could serve as a training tool for medical students, in particular teaching students how to palpate breasts when looking for lumps. Ooh, palpate. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was going to go with breasts on that one, but uh, I guess uh, to each his own. <laughs> Previous haptic devices convey softness by cleverly constraining the motion of fingers and hands. Typically, you operate such devices while lurking, looking at virtual objects on a screen or through VR goggles. And if you poke a soft object, the device will let your fingers move a bit before it starts pulling them back, emulating elasticity of the material. This does sound like a great, what do they call it, like a quick time uh, video game. Oh, yeah, quick time events. Quick time event in a video game where you have to yeah. palpate a, a breast within a certain amount of time to try and find <laughs> the cancer lump, the okay. tumor. Okay, all right. 
this new device consists of a five-fingered haptic hand connected to a robot arm with the mechanism in contact with the fingertips. This mechanism uses a thin, flexible sheet of a material known as hypergel. Are we going to have a picture for this? Because I'm having trouble visualizing, describing. Yeah, here, here's a picture right here. Okay, here we go. Yeah. It's basically a cyborg hand. Yeah, but you stick your hand in it, and it's like it's only attached to your fingertips. It's like all neuromancery and whatnot. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you're, uh, you know, you get your VR goggles on. You're, you're walking the, uh, you know, the the neuro space. It's not quite the power glove from Nintendo, but uh, but close. But what is way. really? <laughs> uh, this mechanism has a flexible sheet of material known as hypergel, which has properties similar to human flesh. Oh. To simulate softness, the sheet of gel is stretched by two tiny rollers. And the finger rests on his strip. So this is like the inside of those little finger things right okay. there. Hypergel. By increasing the tension of the strip or pulling the strip tighter, it makes it feel harder under your finger. While decreasing the tension, letting the strip get looser, makes it feel softer. Okay. Volunteers reported using the new system is similar to the experience of touching a real object. Researchers hope their hardware will one day replace humans and animals for medical training, mitigating issues of availability and ethics. Okay. And five seconds after it's available to medical schools, it will be being used for porn. Oh, I've got a story about that. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. February 2013, Mojo Weejo. Mojo Weejo. Uh, Mojo Weejo. <laughs> Mojo Weejo. It does sound like a character, an anime character. Mojo Weejo is a high-tech toy that enables couples to have sex together over the internet. Oh, nice. Which oh. which people do without toys, but it's a lot of typing. Yeah, I have sex with the internet directly. I don't. I just like hump the shit oh, out of I that see. internet. Yeah. That's what the USB port is for. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, mine's flat and slotted. That's right, and that big. Uh, the Mojo Weejo works via vibration technology with two devices connected via Wii remotes to the internet. Oh, nice. Thank you, Wii. <laughs> Very Wii. Well, Touch I mean, this Wii to your Wii. The female is a dildo, the male an open ring in the shape of the letter C that what? fits over the penis. Okay. The oh, de- yeah. yeah, yeah. The devices are Bluetooth enabled and communication is performed via Skype. <laughs> The partner remotely controls the intensity of the vibrations of the other device. Oh, here's the trick. It works for couples who are in the same room down the street or across the globe. So you actually so, turn it up or down yeah. for the other person. Yeah. Oh, so you're like, you're virtually touching them. Yes. So does that mean like, if I had a, a vagina, for example. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you had a vagina. If I clenched my vagina, uh-huh. the person with the penis on the other one would feel that clench? Is that what we're... No. Is that what's happening? No, sadly, I think they just they can manually control it. It's That's right. not it's oh. not at the it's not at uh telepresence yet. Yeah. But, but this is like this but is, that is what they're phase on. one. Yeah, they are that. absolutely I actually own some remote panties that uh I have a remote that I can make them remote vibrate. Panties. What if they're what pretty awesome? If not a, over the internet though. What if a couple who has these devices has children and they accidentally steal their Wii controller for their <laughs> For their uh, oh their God. partner's device, Bobby, and then <laughs> could you stop playing Zelda, please? I'm trying to wash the dishes. <laughs> and that was the father Terrible. making that Terrible. noise. <laughs> well, I want to talk about Rogue and the X Men. Oh yeah, Rogue involuntarily absorbs and sometimes removes the memories, physical strength, and superpowers of anyone she touches. Yes, yes. wickedly powerful. Uh, the victim's abilities and memories are absorbed for a 1 to 60 ratio of time of contact. Ooh. The victim loses those abilities and memories for exactly the amount of time that Rogue possesses them. But if Rogue holds on to her victim for too long, mm-hmm. the transfer may become permanent, leaving the victim nearly dead, as was the case with Miss Marvel, which that, is where Rogue got her invulnerability and in flight from. Powers, which yes. she doesn't have in the movies, for right. anybody confused. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because she didn't. Uh, she was a yeah. teenager and didn't grab and almost kill Ms. Marvel. Yeah, yeah. Rogue's power is constantly active, rendering her incapable of touching others, although it has been suggested that Rogue's inability to control her powers is psychological in nature. Right. Because yeah. she wasn't hugged enough by, by well, her mother, Mystique. Well, it first manifested when she was a teenager and started making out with a boy, and then she absorbed all of his uh, memories and knocked him unconscious mm-hmm. and freaked out. And then decided, I'm never going to touch anybody ever again. So maybe didn't spend any time practicing. Yeah. That's what Professor X is there for. Though. It totally is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Professor X, you failed. Yeah, but then, uh, but in the comics, of course, you know, Professor X didn't get his hands on her until after she'd been a bad guy for a while. She yeah. was in the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. That's right. And mm-hmm. was Mystique's daughter and was kind of running around and, uh, you know, uh, siphoning powers off of the Ms. Marvels of the world and whatnot. Yep. And it was actually that experience with Ms. Marvel that sent her running towards Professor X. No, it was not. Originally, sort of. But do you know what? the actual turning point was i was i was looking at rogue myself the yeah. other day for this she was in the rom space knight comic 
Right. Mm. And I didn't like that comic. I totally did too. I yeah. collected it. It was not great, but there's lots of good stuff in it. Like yeah. lots of really creative storytelling. Anyway, yeah. uh, when she ta- when she absorbed Rom's memories and powers, she absorbed some of his honor and nobility, and that is what finally sent her to decide to go to the uh, X Men for help. And it was for help to deal with having Ms. Marvel's persona in her head. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it was the Rom Space Knight, like being a super good guy that finally convinced her that okay. she should do that. All right. I'll buy that for a dollar. Which I find hilarious because Rom is, as much as I love it, a ridiculous character these oh, days. Oh, it, it's it was a comic created to sell toys. Yeah, and, and a terrible toy as yeah. well. It was just yeah. like a big silver robot with a gun. But the gun did light up when you put it in his hand. It did. Which was kind of revolutionary at the time. And I loved what they did with it in the comic. It was called the Neutralizer. And yeah. so it just kind of had this almost story-level ability to just, I can neutralize things. <laughs> I'll neutralize your powers. I'll neutralize your heartbeat. Like, you could just <laughs> use the word neutralize it could do anything as long as it neutralized something. Yeah, yeah. Good storytelling. Yeah. Uh, in mythology, mm. we've got King Midas. Oh, yeah. Of the Midas touch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the original story, the god Dionysus offered Midas whatever reward he wished for. Midas asked that whatever he might touch should be changed into gold. He should have added, if I want to. So Midas, king of Lydia, swelled at first with pride when he found he could transform everything he touched into gold. But when he beheld his food grow rigid and his drink harden into golden ice, then he understood that this gift was a bane and accursed his prayer. Just wear gloves. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Gold gloves. Gold gloves. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and if you touched anybody, it would be like punching them with, as if you were, had the golden gloves. Was it, only, it wasn't only his finger. What if he touched someone with his yeah. other body parts, like his tongue or it his was, penis? He, certainly, he wasn't. After this experience, he yeah. didn't want to touch anything. Midas then prayed to Dionysus, begging to be delivered from starvation. Dionysus heard his prayer and consented, told Midas to wash in the river Pactolus. Midas did so, and when he touched the waters, the power flowed into the river, <gasps> and the river sands turned into gold, <gasps> thus explaining why the river Pactolus was so rich with gold. Okay. One of those like myths to explain phenomena in the modern world. If, if everything's turned into gold and he's starving, I guess it means it doesn't matter what touches it. So even his tongue. Because if, he, yeah. if it was only his hand, he could use a gold fork and pick something up and put it in his mouth and eat it. Exactly. But then, I'm guessing, it turns to gold in his mouth. Yeah. Oops. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, in a later account made by Aristotle, Midas actually died from starvation as a result of his vain prayer for the golden touch. So <sighs> Aristotle, Aristotle, Midas special edition. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the Greek myths, I mean, got told and retold constantly. I mean, mm-hmm. you can find... Much like Star Wars. Yeah. Multiple gods have multiple origin stories because right. someone would tell it, then someone would retell it to teach another lesson or as another parable or whatever. So Aristotle took this opportunity to teach a moral lesson Mm -hmm. about uh, your vanity trumping uh, practicality. Because you can't just say, don't hit your brother. (laughs) It has to be because then, you know... You might get hit by me. Dionysius hit his brother and a whole bunch of people turned into apes. There you go. Or whatever. Don't go into the woods alone. Otherwise, the witch will stick Hansel and Gretel in her oven and try and feed them to you. I watched a movie. Okay. Perfect Sense from 2011 with Eva Green and Ewan McGregor. Does she get naked in this movie? Yes. She, ah, she loves getting naked. She's got naked in everything. It's awesome because she looks good naked. <laughs> sure. The plot is a chef and a scientist fall in love as an epidemic begins to rob people of their sensory perceptions. A chef and a scientist. Did they cause it? No. Oh, okay. They do not find a cause. No cause oh. is found. So this might actually be a follow-up to mass hysteria. Okay. Because there are physical symptoms, but they're, they'd never they, find a cause. But it could be a virus. It could be toxin. It could be yeah. something else. There's theories going around. Okay. So this actually is a movie that's good for their, our entire senses series. Okay. okay because good. first people begin to lose their sense of smell. Okay. And then it moves to taste and hearing and sight. And touch is okay. the last one to go. They actually... And the movie before that happens, mm. but it's on. They figure it's it's on the way. They don't really address that. Okay, so it could be that they still have touch by the end of the movie. Okay, uh, that they never lose. So their this touch. is appropriate for the the touch episode because it's the only one that they don't lose. Well, it's also interesting in the way that that's all that they have at the end of the movie. Okay, right? 
So there's a couple of interesting scenes because about halfway through the movie, the two stars are having a bath together mm-hmm. and they don't have a smell or taste. Yeah. So they just start like eating shaving cream and soap and stuff like that just to get the <laughs> sensation of the textures. Okay. And everything because they don't care what it tastes like. Yeah. Yeah. They're not disgusted yeah. by the taste of these things. So right. it's just like, oh, it's so soft and stuff like that. Okay. And then there's another scene where Ewan McGregor goes in like everyone's deaf. Right. But there's he still he goes to a club and there's people performing music. Okay. So you just stand right next to the speaker. There's people like standing next to the speaker and like putting their hands up and closing their eyes and just mm-hmm. letting the feel the vibrations of the music going going That's into cool. their body and stuff like that. So it sounds like this might have actually been a good movie. It was a, it was a pretty good movie. Okay. Um, it starts out with like how would it have been if Ava Green didn't get naked? Still pretty good? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Great. That was a bonus. I would say that was a bonus. Oh, gravy on the biscuit, so to speak. Now, does Ewan McGregor get naked? Yes, but you don't see you don't really see anyone below the waist. Oh, okay. okay. At the beginning, neither of them are really... Like, I didn't have an affinity for either of the characters. They were both kind of... Ewan McGregor especially was just kind of a dick. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and that's kind of a theme, kind of a sub-theme that goes throughout the movie and comes up a bit later. Right. But you begin to empathize with the characters as they go through all these these traumas okay. and stuff like that. And there's a lot of good scenes, and it's shot very well, and the acting's good. and So I would recommend it. Okay. Perfect sense. 2011. Cool. Well, I saw a, an episode of the BBC documentary series Horizons, specifically about Temple Grandin. The part that I found the most interesting was when they're actually like walking through these cattle yards with her and she was explaining like how she came to these conclusions and why she realized this and how she fixed that. And uh, she started talking about the things that she would show up to fix, like why she become this became this all-star in the cattle handle, the livestock right. handling it's world. because she had a bell around her neck. No, she actually dressed kind of like Katie Lang style with like the Western shirts okay. and the uh, yes. and okay. the kerchiefs and yeah. whatnot. Mm-hmm. She, they walk out on this yard and she goes, oh, now see here, right here. And she points at, I'm not even joking, it was like a piece of hay. Right. Like just this little thing. She says, that's the kind of thing that would keep a herd from cat of cattle from going into the slaughterhouse. Like if you just like kept a messy yard, they would see that on the ground and they would all skitter and skittish and nervous. And then they wouldn't go in. And so I just like, you know, to all these places that I went, I just told them to sweep the walk of the where the cows had to go from okay. the yard to the thing. And then they would go calmly and without agitation and blah, blah, blah. And they go into a slaughterhouse that she designed all the stuff for. And she goes, she's sitting there and they're having the interview inside the slaughterhouse. And the cows are all going by like, they're, like they're, I can't wait to be killed. Well, she, she shows that there's a shoot. Like all the shoots used to be in straight lines. That for this one, she designed it and it's in a circle. So okay. they can't see the cows in front of them and get like stopped up and whatnot. You just kind of paddle them on the behind, and it keeps them moving forward. So mm-hmm. you can control. And if you, you don't do that, they'll just stop because they can't see where they're going. So you mm-hmm. can control the, the flow rate. Okay. And they're doing the interview, and she goes, you know, slaughterhouses, it used to be, like, so loud with mooing that you couldn't even hear yourself think. He's like, and she stops. Not one moo. Like, there's no mooing <laughs> in a slaughterhouse. And you see, like, a dozen cows right behind her, and none of them are mooing, right? She's like, that's Temple Grandin Design Slaughterhouse. Wow. Like, that's was, amazing. What was this uh, show called? The Woman Who Thought Like a Cow. And Smelled Like a Cow. Well, she probably did because she showed this one example. She goes, they're nervous by nature, but they're not inherently nervous. They're actually curious creatures. So she laid down in a yard. Like she walked in and there was like 30 cows. Yeah. And they, they all like run away from her. As soon as she opens the gate and walks in, they all yeah. run away to the front and they press up against the mm-hmm. far side. And she lays down on the ground and then just stays perfectly still. And five seconds after she lays down, all the cows like right next to her sniffing her. Yep. So as long as you're not like an immediate threat, they're actually kind of curious. She's the right? cow whisperer. Yeah, until it got to the point where you you could just hear her talking because she was mic'd, but you couldn't even see her. They're all around her, right? <laughs> yeah. So it was a, it was actually quite an interesting documentary. I recommend it. Not for vegetarians. Did anybody else see Lars and the Real Girl? Back when it first came out on video, I watched it. What did you think of it? Uh, I re- it was really odd and... Man, I really well shot, really well acted. I don't know if I would like watch it again and go, "Oh my, I want to see that movie." Yeah. But who's uh, Lars and who's the real girl? So well, the founding premise of the movie is that being he hates human contact. Mm-hmm. Lars Lindstrom, uh-huh. played by um, Ryan Gosling, uh, and he's like this awkward, shy, uh, maybe slightly autistic guy uh, who just has problems dealing with real regular people. Doesn't like being touched, and he ends up falling in love with a sex doll that is it's basically a real doll which mm-hmm. is a very realistic looking female right. sex doll mm-hmm. and uh he starts kind of 
bringing it around town with him as his girlfriend and telling everybody it's his girlfriend. Yeah, when she's like obviously fake, like yeah. she is putting like it in the just, passenger just seat so he can go there. into the high occupancy vehicle uh, lane. Well, he's not that devious, right? Like he wouldn't go. Oh, I could do that. He's so sweet and nice. Like he's really like. Uh, oh, this is. Uh, oh, what was her name? I can't remember. He keeps telling everybody, that he's introducing mm. her by name. Yeah. And the the kind of the twist to me from reality is, I think most people would be like, okay, he's lost his mind. Let's get him committed or or whatever. But instead, the town goes spoiler alert. Well, he's a sweet guy. And nobody's getting hurt. Why don't we just play along and say hello to her and invite them both over for dinner and treat it as though it's actually his girlfriend? Well, that's that's the story arc. Is yeah. That it all starts out. Everyone's kind of like, it's weird. It's yeah. so weird. Like too weird for me. And blah blah blah. And then the arc is that everybody starts to come on side. There's a first couple early yeah. adopters who are just like, you know, shaking her hand and like, cause he doesn't just say like, oh, this is my real doll. No. Like he treats her like a human being, this inanimate object, and, right? And talks with her. And talks with her and sits her on the couch. And, you know, it's like another character that never speaks, right? And they all do it because they care so much about him. That's right. Right? They don't want to upset him because he's a super nice guy. He's just weird. Yeah. And it's a really good movie about kind of understanding what's important to worry about. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, this is an odd thing. It's not exactly maybe healthy. Right. But really on the scale of things, play along. He's happy. Yeah. It's not hurting you any. And it's if it's right for him, why not? Yeah. And also doing this seemed to let him deal with those troubles he was having that made yeah. him do. I mean, spoil, we're going, the movie's been up for a long time. You should go see it anyway. Even though we're spoiling it, it's worth watching for the... Yeah, absolutely. It's Keep... worth watching for the whole journey through this movie and well, the performances. It's, it's and... also looking back on where Ryan Gosling's career has gone mm-hmm. to see him in a tiny independent movie like this. Yeah. It's, it's, it must be because I saw when it first came out. So he wasn't a big star at the time. And uh, now looking back on it, I think it would actually, it might even be kind of fun just because out of context, seeing him in a character like this mm-hmm. would be uh, kind of a refreshing change of pace. Sounds good. Ryan Gosling likes sex with real dolls. That's what I learned from that movie. Don't date robots. That's what I learned from Futurama. <laughs> it's such a weird feeling to know you're alive. It's such an awful feeling. You're dying inside. And when you wake up, startled to say. I hope I don't go crazy today. such a bad feeling, an ominous feeling, a feeling you know that we'll be back when the week is new, and we'll have more gross facts for you, and you'll have things you want to hear about. We will too. Caustic Soda was recorded by Mike Leeson while entangled in the tentacles of a box jellyfish. To comment on episodes, make donations, and for links, images, videos, and show notes, visit causticsodapodcast.com. Rate and review us on iTunes. Visit us on Facebook, tweet us on Twitter at Caustic Podcast, email us at info at causticsodapodcast.com. I'm Pearl the Knitting Wench. Thanks for listening. Sorry, hang on. Hold on. Should I take it? Yeah, take it. Why not? Hello? Yeah, what time do you want to get together? Can I call you back to set that up? I'm just in the middle of a podcast recording right now. Thanks. Is that a guy you know or not? Yes. Hmm. That was not a yes or no question. I added or not. Yes. Okay. (laughs)